The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host Bev Livingston speaks with Tahir Atwater, Director of Donor and Volunteer Engagement, and Judith Westmoreland, Staff Attorney, both with Jackson County CASA, Court Appointed Special Advocates. Tahir and Judith will tell listeners of the mission of CASA and share a lot of insight from a legal point of view, as well as from being longtime advocates here in the Kansas City community. On April 20, we hope you can join Jackson County CASA at the 23rd annual Light of Hope Breakfast in celebration of 40 years of advocacy for children in the foster care system since their founding in 1983 by members of the Kansas City chapter of the National Council of Jewish Women. After the calendar, host Craig Lubo will speak with D.C. Hegert, attorney and the LGBTQ plus legal fellow at the ACLU of Kansas, where they work on enforcing and expanding the rights of LGBTQ plus Kansans. D.C. Hegert and Craig will talk about the anti-trans bills that were considered by the Kansas legislature during the 2023 session. There was a total of 13 bills that were introduced on a variety of trans issues and drag shows. The four that passed are related to banning access to gender-affirming health care for people under 18 and forcing schools, county jails, and various other places of public accommodation to adopt an unscientific and under-inclusive definition of sex that would result in the exclusion of trans people from necessary public spaces. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. Greetings. Bev Livingston here with guest Mr. Atwater and attorney Wes Moreland from CASA. And CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. We are here to talk about a wonderful opportunity for youth and families to have a better outcome and experience in court-related situations. Um, this uh, started as a national movement back in the um, 80s and early 70s um, by a sitting court judge and the judge decided that it was important in making decisions to have input from the family. So I am very proud to have our guest here today to talk about the legal advocacy and services that are provided for abuse, neglected, and youth between the ages of grade school or youth or birth and the age of 21 who enter family court in Jackson County. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Want to um, give you an opportunity to just start wherever you like in terms of what some of the impacts of CASA may be in our court system and how it affects the family. Thank you, Ms. Livingston. So um, as you said, CASA represents the best interest of children in Jackson County who have experienced abuse and neglect in their homes. And we do this by having a three-person team. Um, we have seven staff attorneys. We have our equivalent of on-staff on social workers. Um, and then we, have, we use volunteers from the community. And so we have both attorney volunteers and non-attorney volunteers. And our goal is to make sure that we, as a CASA team, know more about the child and that family than any other person in the courtroom so that we can effectively advocate for their best interest as they go through this case. Our goals recently have really been to work with the family, the, the nuclear family, and the family at large to make sure that children can stay within their family units um, and safely reunify as we work to rectify the issues that bring them into this court system to begin with. 
Well, well, that kind of clears up some of the uh, questions and concerns people may have had about CASA. Sounds like the mission is for advocacy for abused, neglected children in pursuit of safe and permanent homes. And number one, you try to keep them in their home once you deem it safe and a place for them to remain. That is, yes, that is an accurate statement. And then if they have been removed from their home, our goal really is to get them back into their home as quickly mm -hmm. as possible and work with the family as a whole instead of keeping kids removed from their home and in long-term foster care. Awesome, which makes the vision work. And that's the envision of all children thriving in safe, loving, and permanent homes. So tell me how some of that works, Mr. Atwater. So the, the process when, when children come into care, uh, as Judith said, when we ask our volunteers, we give them the training. Child welfare is um, can be incredibly traumatic for the kids in care, um, and it can be incredibly confusing for not just our staff at times, but really for our volunteers. So we're taking the time to make sure that everyone understands both what's happening within the system, but also some of just the systemic issues surrounding our families. So once they're trained up, once we have some sense of, okay, you're ready to take on these cases, again, Judith, her team, the legal team, our case supervisors, our volunteers, every day, our volunteers are going out to meet with their, with their children, wherever they may be, whether they're in their home, what other placements they ha may have. And then our volunteers come back to make sure that we at CASA know what they want and what they need, because that's the most important part. That's why we started, was because we wanted to make sure that kids had a voice and a say in their own care. And this is a wonderful, wonderful national movement and organization because it's accredited by the National CASA Association. Is that correct? It is. There, there are hundreds of CASAs nationwide, and we've been here in Kansas City since 1983. This is our 40th anniversary. So we have a, a very long and established history of being partners to our community and hopefully great partners to our community. That's wonderful. And I understand that the impacts from 2022 um, have youth helped. You have 1,126 youth that were helped with 29,718 volunteer hours. And that's out of 373 active volunteers. That's right. So let's talk about some of the training and some of the preparation that the volunteers have to work with all of the cases. So we pride ourselves on training and then that ongoing support. So I think it's really important to note that volunteers are not people who have come from a social work background. They're not people who understand juvenile justice law, um, or it's not required. Many of them do. Um, but our goal really is to work with anyone who has a heart and a passion for getting to know kids and advocating for their best interest in this system and to then teach you, whoever you are, um, the structure and, and how the foster system works in Jackson County. So our initial training is a total of 30 hours. We have 15 hours of in-person um, training and then an additional 15 hours of reading and watching videos and really getting to know and understand kind of what the foster care system in Jackson County looks like and the legal framework that brings these families to the family court system. And then after that initial training, our volunteers are assigned a case. And with that case, they're assigned staff members who are going to help them, guide them, and explain everything as we go. As I mentioned too, um, I actually supervise and train our volunteer attorneys. Um, and so that looks a little bit different in that the Missouri Supreme Court mandated that all um, guardians ad litem should have an eight-hour training, an eight-hour continuing legal education training specific to guardian ad litem work prior to doing that. So approximately three times a year, CASA also hosts a um, continuing legal education for guardians ad litem. We have one coming up on May 10th, um, and we partner with UMKC to put that on. And so that's the part of the initial training for our volunteer attorneys who 
take that role of guardian ad litem and volunteer and then also have the supportive staff to get to know their kids and advocate for them in the legal system as well. Um, we also have ongoing training requirements, so I don't want anyone out there to think that they are going to be lacking in information or support. We have ongoing training requirements and we provide trainings all the time um, to help people at different levels of their case when we're talking about you know how to get to know kids and what to do on an initial visit to explain who you are, all the way from that to we're at reunification. What does that look like? How do I engage with a family and with parents in this system when maybe I haven't had that close relationship before? So we have ongoing trainings at every point in the case to make sure that you feel equipped um, as the volunteer to advocate for the kids that you know the best. Awesome. I wanted yes. I wanted to add. So for for people out there listening, just to give you some sense of what maybe a day to day would look like. So for instance, when Judith and I go visit the Casa kids that we're working with. So I have a few kids that I volunteer with. So yesterday I went to go visit one of my Casa kids. He's in a foster placement, and all we did for about an hour and a half was just sit and talk. It's just kids love the fact that there's actually an adult there that wants to just listen and not tell them or advise. Just listen to them. Mm-hmm. And I'd ask him very simple questions. How are you doing? How's school going? Anything here you're worried about? Because we've established a relationship. He knows that he's going to see me at least once a month. Because for the kids that come into care, there is such inconsistency at times for the number of people that they may see. They may have different workers from one time, from one month to another. But they know with their CASA workers that they're going to see that same consistent face. So they can build that trust. We play some, we play some board games, something light, right? something easy. But it really is him telling me what he needs. And then when I go back and I talk to, say, Judith, the lawyer on my case, or the case supervisor on my case, and say, here's what's going on, now Judith can go into court and say, this is what this child needs and wants. So it really is about what our volunteers and our staff are doing every day. And it really is about that people-to-people connection for these kids. What an awesome teamwork approach. And I'm really loving hearing training, 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 because this is such a traumatic driven kind of experience kids find themselves in right and then when they feel like they're being removed from their loving family or whatever their family function was it's that separation anxiety it's that need for the child to feel like someone's representing them and just a whole court experience so in terms of the traumatic experience that both volunteers, because some volunteers, Mm -hmm. I'm sure their hearts and their spirits are really into helping this young person land in a good, safe place. What are some of the challenges that you find are pretty common? And then what do you do in those unique situations in terms of your network? And and who do you reach out to when there are medical issues and there are diagnoses that are beyond what the volunteer has been trained to handle? So that's a fantastic question. Of course, many specific cases come to mind. Um, I think it's important to remember that CASA is the advocate for the kid. And so in working with this family, we have our CASA team, and then there's a whole family support team. So parents have attorneys that represent through them through the court process. Um, Children's Division is the entity on behalf of the state of Missouri that is responsible for putting services in place. And in in all of that, our, our CASA team continues to advocate for different services to be put in place for kids and for families. And we have a fantastic network of services in the Kansas City area. Of course, there's never enough and funding is always an issue and I'm sure everyone talks about that on your show anytime that we're talking about, you know, access to services and justice in general. But we work with University Health. We work with Foster Adopt Connect. Um, We work with our contract agencies, Great Circle and KVC um, and um, I mean, just everyone. Um, So we have a lot of partners. St. Luke's also provides therapy. So there are therapy services and psychiatric services um, and then family reunification services and so when when we are talking about the trauma that our families experience the families that we work with experience and then we're also talking about that secondary trauma um, of being the advocate on the case 
we try to make sure that our our families and our volunteers are supported as much as they need in order to talk with CASA staff, in order to talk with maybe a therapist that's outside of CASA staff, um, to be able to make sure that we're processing what we've experienced as a team in this in this world, um, and to make sure that we're really understanding next steps in self-care. Um, because sometimes the hardest thing, I think, mm -hmm. is understanding where those boundaries come in play when you're the advocate for a child, but we're not that child's parent. We're sure. not their disciplinarian. We're not their therapist. Right. So we are responsible for advocating to put all of those people in place in their lives. Um, but sometimes it's okay to take a step back and say, this is not the thing that I have to do right now. Right. Um, instead, I need to refer this child to the psychiatric care that is necessary and needed and let them know that I'll be here w for whatever they need, but I can't do everything. Got ya. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of boundaries that people have to understand and respect, and there are a lot of things that you just aren't prepared for. And I noticed that your programs have a civil rights statement. And I think that's really important when we're dealing with gender-based thinking and issues and right. matters and pride and kids are experimenting and they think they have rights, but they may not know their rights. So tell me, how has the civil rights statement really assisted in keeping peace in the TP and keeping people in their lanes and helping young people get ready for society? Well, I, I think CASA, we're one of those organizations, we're trying to be at the forefront of changing the narrative around the families and the kids that come into care. And unfortunately, there's, again, disparity, racial disparity, as it seems in, in just about every facet of our lives, right? We're talking about, what, 24% or so of the Jackson County population, I think, is black, right around that, and roughly 40% of the children in care are black. So when you see that over-indexing of race constantly showing up, when you see the exclusionary practices for our children that identify as LGBTQ+, we have to do more work to not only change the narrative, but make sure those kids have a, a sense of belonging as much as you can have in a system as complicated and often traumatic as child welfare, right? So what we're, what we're trying to do in staff is first take some inventory, evaluate ourselves. Are we moving with a sense of cultural humility, a cultural awareness? And then can we make sure that when we go talk to our children, we're not perpetuating more harm? and that we're actually letting them know we see you and we're using some language or using practices so that you know we can build some trust so that we can hopefully get you back to the home you want to be in. Wow, how comforting for a young person to hear that. As you rally the wagon and you begin to create that treatment plan or whatever the plan is for the young person that you're going to represent and work with, what are some of the main steps that you have to know and deal with to really get a case functional for the CASA volunteer, for the court to know what the representation is about, and how long does that usually take to just really get ready to go in court and be successful in creating a plan for this young person and getting it ordered? Hmm. Well, Ms. Livingston, how long is this going to take? <laughs> Is every volunteer's first question, yes. every child's first question, <laughs> um, and probably every parent's right. first question. Yes. Um, so the answer is it depends, of mm -hmm. course. Um, but you bring up such a great point in terms of how can you advocate successfully. And I would say our goal to advocating for kids and families is to know them because I can't advocate for a child if I don't know who they are and if I don't know what they want. Mm -hmm. um, children's voices are so important in determining the steps that we take. So a child that says, I want to go home, speaks volumes about the bond between the parent-child relationship. A child that says, I don't want to go home, speaks volumes about the bond that's been broken and how long we're gonna have to work for that child to feel safe and secure physically and emotionally in their home again. I know those are two very 
Um, they seem rudimentary examples, mm -hmm. and yet that's what we deal with every day. Does the, what does this kid want? And then I just want to throw out there: as kids get older, um, they like to express themselves a lot more. Um, you know, teenagers or young adults trying to figure out how to become people who are successful in this world. And so often the teenagers that we work with feel like they have 17 parents. Um, so at CASA, we have an older youth program. And I know that you mentioned, so I just want to clarify, in the state of Missouri, children age out of foster care at the age of 21. Um, so hopefully, we've worked to make them as successful adults as we can by that time. But CASA also receives grant funding to be able to work with kids until the age of 26. Mm -hmm. And so we can continue to be that support in their lives um, as, as they continue to figure out what comes after 21, what comes after 18. Um, and so we we really try to know our kids and know what they need to be able to go in and advocate for these are the services that we need to put in place in order to successfully reunify this family and bring them back together. Awesome. One final question I'm going to ask is how does a person get a CASA volunteer when they are involved in family court? And then I want to go right into letting our guests know about a wonderful event you have coming up on the 20th, this Thursday, um, at the Sheraton at the Crown Center. And we have a table, and we are looking forward we to networking that. and eating and getting our day started right. with you. So how does a CASA volunteer get assigned? So every child who comes into care in Jackson County is assigned a guardian ad litem. And then um, CASA represents about half of the new kids that come into care. And so um, kids, ki kids, volunteers could always reach out to CASA um, and express an interest. We have ongoing listening sessions on a regular basis. And then um, as soon as they are through training, we will assign them to their first case based on their interest and needs and the needs of the family. Wow, how valuable. Now, are the attorneys like pro bono attorneys or some are paid or... How does the CASA volunteer attorneys come in? Sure. So um, if attorneys are interested in representing kids, we would love to have you. They can reach out to on the CASA website as well. Um, no one is paid who volunteers with CASA. <laughs> we okay. appreciate the time and energy that all of our volunteers put into advocating for kids um, who have experienced abuse and neglect in their homes. Uh, and again, there's no special training required for to be a volunteer attorney or to be um, a CASA volunteer. Okay. We, we will provide all of that for you. Wow, what great experience. Um, I also wanted to know, do we have the fines and fees associated with restitutions that the youth cases have in Jackson County? Is that a yes or no for fines and fees and restitution? Yes. That's paid by the family that's expected to be paid. So yes, um, is my understanding. I will say we don't work with kids in terms of overcoming those fines and fees, mm -hmm. um, but we are always looking to work with other attorneys in the Kansas City area who understand that system a little bit better and okay. can help represent our kids when they have fines and fees that need to be paid that they are not able to do so in order to move forward and um, not have that those hurdles right. in their life. Right, right. And any other comments you'd like to make, Mr. Atwater? <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned our breakfast, and I think when we talk about the three big events that we have throughout the year, we have Carnival, which is a celebration for our kids. We have a cocktails event later in the fall. But our Light of Hope breakfast, again, this is our 40th anniversary, so it's really a celebration. And it's the largest charitable breakfast in the city. Uh, we have probably anywhere from 900 to 11, 1,200 people that come out totally free, and it's probably one of the best opportunities for someone to hear, other than this platform, right? One of the best opportunities for someone to actually hear and see some of the stories that we get to do every day and why I get to work with people like Judith. Um, you know, it's one of the best jobs in the world. But again, this is coming up, like you said, Thursday, Thursday morning, 7.30 to 8.30. Um, 7 a.m., people can get there early for a little networking. But again, they're going to get a chance to hear about our volunteers 
see our stories. We're going to celebrate some of our longtime volunteers and then invite more people to join us. Wonderful. And that contact again for registering for the breakfast and for reaching CASA. Uh, actually, if you would just go to, it's at jacksoncountycasa-mo.org. So jacksoncountymissouri.org. Or if you search for Jackson County, Missouri, CASA, it will come up too. I know sometimes those, those uh, web addresses can be a little tricky. But again, search for Jackson County, CASA-Missouri.org. Go to our website, find out how you can get involved. All right. And CASA, again, stands for? Court-Appointed Special Advocates. All right. Attorney Westmore, uh, would you have any other comments for us? Um, Attorney Westmoreland. Well, I just really appreciate you having us here this morning and getting the message out about what CASA does. Um, we are always looking to expand our volunteer corps, and I just we are also always looking for opportunities to learn um, because we recognize as a CASA staff that just like we were talking about expanding our civil rights and LGBTQ knowledge, um, we make a real point to make sure that we try to stay up to date with what is necessary and relevant now to be the best representatives for our kids. Well, I am so proud to have had you as guests on the show today. I hope our listeners have been informed, empowered, and inspired to be volunteers or to support a wonderful program because we may not be able to always prepare our youth for our community, but we can prepare our community for our youth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. It's Junebug. It's that time again for the Blues Kitchen Live. This year's event benefits the Center for Recorded Music and KKFI. Be part of the live audience at UMKC Student Union Saturday, April 29th at 8 a.m. for breakfast and barbecue. We'll be playing the blues and talking some cue. Thanks go out to BB's Lawnside Barbecue for their help. Don't forget, get your tickets from centerforrecordedmusic.org, centerforrecordedmusic.org, and come hungry. Here's the calendar for the week of April 17th. The Kansas City Chapter of Missouri Citizens United for the Rehabilitation of Errants has a monthly virtual meeting. Missouri Cure advocates for the human rights of prisoners in Missouri prisons and jails, as well as for those who have returned to society. For more information, you can call Keith Brownell at 816-377-2873. You can find Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense events at momsdemandaction.org. These are open to all, mothers and others. Thursday, April 20, 5 p.m., Hope and Healing for Survivors of Homicide is a monthly support group sponsored by the Casey Mothers in Charge. They meet at the Robert J. Mohart Multipurpose Event Center, 3200 Wayne Avenue, Kansas City, Missouri. You can RSVP by phone or email 816-912-2601 or contact Latrice dot Murray at kcmothersincharge.org. Friday, April 21st at 11 a.m., the Community Justice Coalition meets virtually. The Community Justice Coalition is a multi-sector team of dedicated advocates who envision a future without mass incarceration. 
for access info, you can go to empowermissouri.org. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. These events and more can also be found on the show episode page at kkfi.org, as well as on our Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. Thanks to all our listeners. Stay close to your dial and stay well. We now return to our hour, Craig Lubo speaking with D.C. Hegert. It's the 420 Drug War News. Doug McVeigh, our guest on last week's Cultural Baggage Show. Okay, sorry about that. Good morning, all. This is Craig Lubo, and as Terry indicated, I'm going to be talking with um, D.C. Hegert. She is a legal fellow. Um, well, she's an attorney and legal fellow with the ACLU of Kansas, and um, she specializes in LGBTQ issues, legislation, and cases and courts. Um, welcome, DC. Yeah. Okay. So, um, one of the things, um, we'll just do a little background. Um, the, there are approximately more than 100, I think close to 200, anti-trans bills that were introduced nationwide. Um in this past year. There are several states that have considered and passed so-called bathroom bills, anti-trans participation in sports, etc. Right, yeah. Okay. And DC, can you hear us now? Oh. We can't hear her. You talk oh, to her. Okay. So oh, uh, Yeah, I can hear y'all. Can you can you okay. hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. All right. So Okay. In Kansas we um passed, I believe you said thirteen anti trans bills. Five mm-hmm. so Okay, five, oh, sorry, have ahead, been, five have been sent to the governor, one of which he has already vetoed, and it was overridden. Now, I believe that was mm-hmm. the bill relating to the participation of trans on girls' uh, sports teams. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So just... just um to contextualize, because it's been a bit of a, a moving landscape in this space, um, the number of bills across the country have, that have been introduced, the ACLU is tracking actually over 430. Um, wow. So that's it's been it's it's um, quite a large number that have been introduced this year alone, just in 2023. And then, yeah, you're correct. In Kansas, there was 13 bills introduced this legislative session, and five of those have. Um, been passed out of the chambers to head to the governor's desk. The the one bill uh, that has already been um, vetoed by Governor Kelly but was overridden by the legislature is the um, bill that we've been calling the trans sports ban that would effectively um, ban all trans girls and women in the state of Kansas from playing sports as themselves. And that's um, everyone from kindergartners through collegiate athletes. So it's quite a broad bill. All right. And tell me, my understanding is that the argument that they used in favor of that bill is that trans women, if they were biologically male before, are going to have a considerable edge, if you will, over um, biological females. Is that correct? Yeah, so a lot of the argument that we see in this space is usually 
um, kind of couched in in the language of you know quote protecting women or um, guarding fairness in sports, um, but it's just really you know an oversimplification an oversimplification of of what we're talking about when we're talking about sports and athletics, um, you know, because there's such a broad difference um, in from person to person, whether they're cis, whether they're trans, and their athletic ability. Um, but besides that, really, the problem with this bill is that the the legislature is trying to get involved in you know creating a blanket policy that applies broadly to every sport and that's really ineffective there's already um you know institutions like Keisha and school districts that can handle these types of issues at the individual level for their communities instead of um kind of creating this this broad ban um that addresses a problem that doesn't really exist in Kansas and uh, I would think that perhaps a lot of the legislators probably should go visit the inside of a gym sometime because when I've been inside there, there's frequently a lot of women who are powerlifting and doing far more stuff than I could ever dream of doing. So the idea that women are inherently weaker is just silly. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, certainly insulting to female athletes. I think we've been having this debate since, you know, you go back to Billie Jean King and the Battle of the Sexes. I mean, um, I think it is it is certainly insulting to, to women to have this sort of framing brought up um, that they're being protected when they're actually, you know, great competitors in their own regard. Okay, let's move to the um, bills that restrict drag shows. This is a mm-hmm. phenomenon that's going on in both Kansas and Missouri at the current time. And I saw in the list um, on your site that there's two bills that affect drag shows. One is Senate Bill 149, which relates to expanding the what they mean by promoting obscenity to include drag shows. Tell me some about that and what the consequences of that would be. For sure. So um, I do want to just flag that while we had that bill and another in Kansas um, introduced limiting um, the ability of, of establishments to have, have you know, publicly accessible drag shows, and there's certainly lots of First Amendment implications and um, you know, free speech implications with those bills. Uh, luckily in Kansas, those bills after they were introduced didn't get a lot of support in the legislature. So they, um, hadn't, hadn't moved much this session and they didn't, um, make it out of the chambers to, to head to Governor Kelly's desk. So while those are certainly concerning, um, you know, the, the focus now is on some of the other bills that have passed from the legislature. But I will just say sort of, broadly on these drag bans that we've seen come up in Kansas and Missouri and in other states across the country. Um, You know, they're not an isolated um, occurrence. These are all a part of, you know, a a national effort to be censoring, you know, um, people's gender expression and gender performance and really to be censoring trans people's, you know, ability to live public lives. And uh, that's why we are seeing such a large increase in the number of bills, both drag bans and other bills specifically targeting trans folks' um, access to public accommodations and health care across the country. Um, there's just a big push to kind of use trans folks and queer folks as, you know, pawns to score political points instead of focusing on the issues that matter to Kansans or to Missourians or, you know, to, to folks across the country. And the other bill relating to drag shows related to using state money, did that bill also not pass out of the legislature? Correct. Yeah, that bill did not pass out of the legislature as well. So aside from the sports ban that had been vetoed, but the veto was overridden, the other four bills that have passed out of the legislature in Kansas um, are bills related to banning access to gender-affirming care, for anyone under 18 in the state. Um, There's another bill, SB 180, that uh, essentially tries to codify a definition of sex 
that is, you know, outdated and unscientific um, and would exclude trans and intersex and gender nonconforming people from lots of various different other uh, public accommodations. And then there's two other bills um, using that definition from what SB 180 and applying it to policies for um, public school overnight trips and another one, another bill uh, applying that definition to our county jails and how sheriffs would have to house individuals in our county jail system. So those are the four bills that are headed to Governor Kelly's desk. And, you know, we are hopeful she will keep her word that she will be vetoing any bills that harm queer trans folks. Um, and so we'll, we'll see what happens with um, the veto session when the legislature comes back at the end of this month. Okay. And based upon what you've been well, based upon what happened with the sports bill and based upon any additional chatter that you've been hearing in the legislature about these other bills, <clears throat> do you feel like there is a chance that they will uphold the vetoes or do you think it's a foregone conclusion that they will override? certainly don't think it's a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, for instance, SB 26, which is the um, gender-affirming health care ban, um, that bill had, um, the, uh, like, it didn't have veto-proof numbers. We, so that is to say there were a lot more um, legislators, including Republicans, that were um, voting no on that bill. So I think that if you know, we're expecting a veto from Governor Kelly on that bill, and we expect to be able to sustain that veto. Um, but that's not to say that we don't think we'll be able to sustain vetoes on any of these other three bills. I think that the vote counts are a little more challenging on those bills than, say, the health care bill. Um, but we have, um, you know, the, the ACLU, ACLU of Kansas, along with our LGBTQ plus community partners, are working to make sure that we don't have a situation like what happened with the sports bill getting um, its veto overridden, have that happening um, with these other bills. I think we um, are, are dedicated to making sure that we can get the votes we need to sustain vetoes if we get those from the governor. Okay. Another bill is the SB Senate Bill 12, and... It's the title of it is Child Mutilation Prevention Act, which relates to gender reassignment surgery on minors. Tell us what the status of that bill is and what all it would do. Certainly. So SB 12 was the legislator's sort of first attempt at introducing a bill that would ban access to gender-affirming care for trans folks. And I do just want to have, just to name the language I'm using, gender-affirming care um, is care that, that trans folks um, access, whether it's mental health services, whether it's um, things like puberty blockers or maybe hormone therapy. Um, that is a broad term that's inclusive of lots of health care that's not just um, gender affirmation surgeries that I think we typically start thinking of when we talk about this. But so SB 12 uh, criminalized that care. It would make it a level four felony for doctors to provide that care in Kansas. And again, this is evidence-based, medically necessary, um, safe and effective care that the legislature was attempting to ban. Luckily, um, SB 12 was scheduled for a hearing, but it was pulled out and swapped with a different bill um, which is the one that passed uh, SB 26. Um, you know, it has had different names and titles uh, over the course of the legislative session, but where it's at now is it's SB 26. And this bill, um, instead of criminalizing the care, it creates a civil cause of action for individuals to sue providers if they provide this care to anyone under 18 in the state. Um, and it would automatically revoke our uh, medical providers' licenses if they provided this care. So it's it's still an effective ban on this care. It's just through civil language instead of through criminal language. Um, and you know, it's it's a problematic because, as I said, this is ne medically necessary, evidence-based, life-saving healthcare. And the other issue is that you know. 
every major medical association, the American Medical Association, um, the uh, Association of Pediatric Care, all of these places have said that these types of bills are bad and that children and young adults should have access to gender-affirming care. And so these bills are just evidence of our legislature getting in between families and their providers' ability to access health care that they need. Okay. The... Um, there's a bill, SB 228. It relates mm-hmm. to reimbursement to the counties and relates to, um, I'm guessing, trans people who are in the who are in jails on crimes. Uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. clear to me when I looked at that bill that it did relate to trans, but since that was in that group, I'm assuming it yeah. does. So, can you yeah, tell so us about that? Oh, sorry. For sure. So it initially didn't have anything to do explicitly with trans individuals in our jails. It was actually, um, you know, an overall good bill that was just updating some of the language in our county jail statutes and creating um, an avenue for reimbursement for our county jails and sheriffs um, for um, individuals that they had in their jails um, that were accessing mental health services. But what happened was uh, a Senate committee amended that bill to include um, anti-trans language, uh, which essentially they added in a definition of sex that is unscientific and under under inclusive of all of the you know it, it excludes trans people, it excludes intersex individuals, and it re- require county sheriffs to house trans folks um, in jails in our state um, in, in inaccurately, essentially would house them in places that doesn't align with their true gender. And not only would it do that, but it would put our state's uh, access to federal funding for our county jails at risk because it would be violating national standards on how to house trans folks. Um, so, yeah, that's SB 228 is definitely concerning. Um, especially because it was um, it was originally you know a good bill and now has been amended to to have discrimination and, and problematic language. House Bill two two six three relates to a cause mm-hmm. of action against m- some medical providers, including pharmacy techs. And I think this sounds a little bit like it overlaps with that SB 26. But can you tell us what it does and what the distinction is between the two bills? For sure. So that's actually kind of what an outgrowth of what happened with SB 12, which was that health care bill that criminalized the care. They pulled SB 12 from a hearing and then um, gave SB um, 233 was the original number, a hearing, which was this this civil cause of action bill that I'm talking about, um, which was which is now SB 26. Uh, it, it's quite a bit of a headache to follow along here. But so what happened was they took SB 233, which was this uh, bill that created a civil cause of action and banned gender affirming care for minors in the state. Um, they added. SB 233 on to HB 2263, which again was a good bill that allowed for um, more access to um, vaccinations through pharmacy techs in Kansas. So a wholly unrelated bill to trans folks' health care. They added on the entirety of SB 233, the civil ban on gender-affirming care, to HB 2263, which was a vaccines bill. That bill um, ended up not going anywhere, and so they gut and goad SB 26 so they could put the civil cause of action gender-affirming care ban in SB 26, and that is the bill that passed and is headed to Governor Kelly's desk. And when you say the vaccine bans, um, are we talking about Hormone shots or what? Well, no. So the HB twenty two sixty three was a bill allowing for pharmacy techs 
to provide vaccinations at pharmacies in Kansas. It doesn't have it didn't have anything to do with trans people or trans health care. It was just a bill allowing like it was allowing pharmacy techs like a student in a pharmacy school working at a pharmacy to provide, say, a flu shot or some other type of vaccine at a pharmacy. And then the legislature, because they were so concerned with passing bills that harm trans people, they amended on to that bill that wasn't related to trans people at all. They amended on all of this language about banning gender affirming care to that bill. Um, That version of the bill didn't make it out to Governor Kelly's desk. The bill that made it to Governor Kelly's desk um, was SB 26, which didn't include the pharmacy vaccination piece and just included the language banning gender affirming health care. Okay, so the one pending Governor Kelly's either signature veto is the SB 26 version. Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on one of these bills you mentioned, um, First Amendment issues. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And is there likely to be litigation by the ACLU on any of these bills? Sure. So, um, you know, I can't speak specifically about um, the likelihood of litigation from the ACLU, but I can say that the ACLU of Kansas is going to continue to track um, what happens with the trans sports ban that has already um, been, the veto has already been overridden, as well as these other four bills that are headed to Governor Kelly's desk. Um, and we will be considering all available avenues for legal advocacy um, as we as we see what the outcomes of this legislative session are. Um, as far as you know, some of the specific concerns. Uh, if folks are if folks are curious, uh, there's I've provided opposition testimony on all of these bills that kind of break down all of their various legal issues. Um, but just broadly speaking, all of these bills, whether we're talking about the sports ban that has passed, whether we're talking about um, the health care ban or some of these other bills, they all have, um, you know, constitutional issues and um, clear problems with discrimination in them. Um, you know, whether that's violation of Title IX, um, you know, pr- protections from discrimination based on sex and gender, whether that's violations under the Constitution's, um, you know, 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause, but but all of these bills, you know, are clearly trying to discriminate against trans people in one way or the or another, um, and that's a problem because trans folks, just like all other Kansans, um, you know, have civil and constitutional rights um, that need protected. Okay. And you mentioned Title Nine. Is there mm-hmm. anything the Biden administration is doing to use that act to protect trans? Yeah, certainly. So, um, you know, where litigation in the courts um, is headed, where, you know, most courts have, majority of courts that have looked at Title IX protections for trans um, students in various different contexts have found that Trans students are protected under Title IX, just like all other students. Um, and the Biden administration has said similar things in their guidance. And actually, there was, you know, uh, proposed rulemaking out of the Department of Education related to Title IX, affirming that trans students' uh, rights are protected under Title IX. Um, there was a uh, more recent uh, proposed rulemaking related to um, trans athletes' rights under Oh, yeah. DC, we are out of time. Thank you for listening to us. You've been we've been talking to DC Hebert about trans issues in Kansas, and we will include some links in the episode description with more information. Th- thank you, DC. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay. It's the four twenty drug war news. Doug McVeigh, our guest on last week's Cultural Baggage Show, interviewed Nisi Devano and Brian Pace on his Century of Lies program. Part of the reason that we were 
looking at this as well was just the I mentioned already the financial interests that are getting involved in the psychedelics field and there's there had been a a kind of growing push by some of the people on the corporate side to kind of wave away criticisms of their strategies on the basis that we need to get psychedelics to as many people as quick as possible in order to say, like, ensure the future of the planet and humanity. And I'm not even exaggerating, like that's exactly what some people say. And so they'll, they'll specifically say that psychedelics will solve climate change, it will solve political polarization. And so it's like, who are you to question what I'm doing? Do you want the world to burn up? Do you want everyone to die in a mass civil war? Or do you want to be quiet and let me do what I'm trying to do? And so our point is that <clears throat> looking at the cross-cultural and historical records, it matters extraordinarily the context in which these substances are are taken and they're not just going to fix them they're a powerful tool arguably but they're not going to automatically fix things um you know regardless of the way that they're used so we wanted to make sure that there was more sensitivity to you know psychedelics can be extremely dangerous especially when used by dangerous people yeah this is something in the in the paper we termed the um the Trojan horse theory of change. Um, the idea being that, you know, working with, say, uh, billionaires like Peter Thiel to fund your corporatelic outfits, um, getting money from billionaire right wing uh, billionaire Rebecca Mercer and and using it to fund psychedelic research like these are all totally acceptable you know, means justifying uh, the ends uh, if you, you know, believe that psychedelics are going to uh, de facto pharmacologically, if they're going to uh, change people's minds as the, you know, sort of the title of a popular book on this uh, indicates, you know, that this is going to um, directionally influence people to become more progressive, that, 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 that makes a lot of, um, a lot of decisions easier and more acceptable. Um, but, but it's not so, comp it's, it's not so simple. Once again, that was taken from uh, last week's Cultural Baggage Show, where Doug McVeigh, the Drug Truth Network reporter who produces Century of Lies, was our guest, and he interviewed these two folks, and you can hear the whole thing by going to our website, and, well, hell, we got nearly 10,000 shows there for you. I am Dean at DrugTruth.net. you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. Please tune in for the rest of our 9 a.m. weekday lineup with the Law and Disorder on Tuesday, Alternative Radio on Wednesday, Cowtown Conversations on Thursday, and Between the Lines at 9 a.m., followed by Understanding Israel-Palestine at 9.30 a.m. on Fridays. 
Up next is Monday Morning Medicine Show with Dr. Mike. And at noon, Arts Magazine with Michael Hogue. Stick around for jazz and blues in the afternoon and Eco Radio KC at 6 p.m. Then round out your day south of the border with Fiesta Musicale. This is Steve Earle, and you're listening to 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio.